In this episode of the Living for Truth podcast, we resume our personal reading of Christianity through the centuries, a history of the Christian church by Earl E. Carnes. Today we come to chapter 32 in a new era of church history. It's titled in this book as Rationalism, Revivalism, and the Denominationalism, 1648 to 1789. Chapter 32 the establishment of Christianity in North America. Modern culture has broken increasingly with Christian control and integration of life. The Peace of Westphalia in 1648 is a dividing point between religious patterns developed in the Reformation and tendencies in church history since that time. Recurrent revivalism and various manifestations of rationalism developed concurrently. Rationalism, which gave birth to liberalism in the Church, led to a break with the Bible and the theology of the Reformation. Denominationalism grew out of the separation of Church and State. The rise of toleration and freedom of religion brought about the necessity of voluntary support of the Church and more democratic control over its affairs by the laity. The colonists accepted the fallibility of man and his institutions and the need to limit power because of sin. Because people were not born into a state church, evangelism became important as a means of winning them to Christianity. Unfortunately, separation of church and state often meant not merely the refusal of to favor one religion above another, but an irreligious attitude in affairs of state. Separation was created, has created the secular state of the 20th century, which in some lands threatens the existence of the church. The tendency to denominationalism has been somewhat offset in the 20th century by the tendencies toward reunion and ecumenical movements. Today, fusion or reunion seems to have replaced the fission of post-Reformation Protestantism. A great Protestant missionary movement since 1792 and philanthropy to meet social needs have been definite parts of modern Christianity. The Church has also faced attack from biblical critics, evolutionists, and totalitarian states. Heading A. The Anglican Church in America The Virginia Company, which was given a charter in 1606 to settle and to exploit land in America, sent out settlers to Jamestown in 1607. This settlement of gentry and workers was organized on a communal basis, and provision was made for the establishment of the Anglican Church. Among the settlers was Robert Hunt, a chaplain, who first gave the Lord's Supper to the colonists under the protection of an old sail while the worshippers sat on logs. John Rolfe, who married Pocahontas, laid the foundation of the early wealth of the colony by successfully growing tobacco in 1612. The colony did not prosper economically until the communal experiment ended in 1619 and land and the privilege of electing a representative government governing body were granted to the colonists of the company. Increasing numbers of Puritan Anglicans migrated to the colony. Alexander Whitaker, who had Puritan leanings, became the leading minister of the Anglican Church in Virginia between 1611 and 1617. Slavery was established with the purchase of slaves from Dutch traders in 1619 to work the tobacco plantations. In 1624, the, pro the company was dissolved, and Virginia became a royal colony ruled for the king by, the, by a governor. The Anglican Church remained as the established church, 
of the new colony. Its pastors gave indifferent service until James Blair, pastor of Bruton Parish from 1710 to 1743, came to Virginia as commissary in 1689 to inspect the churches and to work out reforms. He founded the College of William and Mary in 1693. The Anglican Church also finally became the established Church of Maryland in 1702, despite the opposition of the Roman Catholics, who had been permitted to settle there by Lord Baltimore. The religious toleration that the first Lord Baltimore had permitted was thus ended. It was made the established Church in parts of New York in 1693, in spite of opposition from the Dutch, who had originally settled New York. An act of 1715 made the Anglican Church the established church in North Carolina, and earlier, in 1705, it was established in South Carolina. Georgia accepted Anglican establishment in 1758. Not until the American Revolution was this pattern changed. The Society of the, for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, founded in 1701 by Thomas Bray, the Commissary of Maryland, made possible a more consecrated and spiritual ministry in the various established churches. Before that time, the established churches had often been characterized by moral and spiritual laxity. The society sent over 300 missionaries to the colonies. Bray had also organized the society, the Society for Promotion of Christian Knowledge in 1699 to provide libraries for clergy in the colonies. One can readily see why the established Anglican Church was strongest in southern colonies before the American Revolution, and congregational state churches were strongest in New England. Pluralism and comp competition led to freedom of religion in Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, the Jerseys, and Maryland during the colonial period. Heading B. The Planting of New England Congregationalism Congregationalism became the established church in New England early in the 17th century. The Scrooby Congregation, which had migrated to friendly Leiden in Holland to escape persecution because of their congregationalist ideas, decided to migrate to America in order to prevent the eventual assimilation of their young people into the Dutch population. A London company of merchant adventurers lent them £7,000 to finance the voyage. The immigrants, who had nothing to contribute but their labor, were to repay the merchants by helping them build up a fishing industry. In August 1620, over 100 colonists, known as the Pilgrims, set sail for England to America on the Mayflower. For some reason, they landed in Plymouth, in New England, rather than in northern Virginia. So they had to get a new charter from the company in whose territories they were living. In order to prevent the unruly from disturbing the colony, they drew up the Mayflower Compact as an instrument of government before they landed. It was really an extension of the covenant idea of the separatists to civil government. And the compact remained their constitution until Plymouth was incorporated with the Salem settlements in Massachusetts in 1691. The landing at Plymouth was prov providentially for if the colonists had landed in it, providential for if the colonists had landed in Virginia they could have been persecuted as much as they had been in England 
Elder Brewster served as their religious leader, and William Bradford became their first governor. His history of Plymouth Plantation is a primary source with descriptions of their hardships. At least 50 of the colonists died during that first hard winter, but from the next spring on the fortunes of the colonists flourished, and they were soon able to pay off their debts. The church was the center of spiritual and social life in their community. The larger number of non-separatist Puritans settled in Salem and Boston after 1628, and in 1626 John White, a Puritan minister of Dorchester, England, organized a company to settle a few people at Salem. About 50 of his company landed in Salem in the fall of 1628 and chose John Endicott as their governor. These people were either Puritan Congregationalists or, possibly, Anglicans inclined to Congregationalism before they left England. This, more than the kindly medical services of Dr. Samuel Fuller, who came from the Separatist Plymouth colony to give them medical aid during the winter of 1628-29, to led the Salem colony to set up the congregational system of church government based on a covenant. In 1629, White's organization was incorporated into the Massachusetts Bay Company. All the stockholders of the Massachusetts Bay Company who did not want to migrate from England withdrew, and about 900 sailed to America with the governors of the company and the charter in order to get away from the despotic personal rule of Charles I. In 1631, the Massachusetts General Court limited the right to vote to church church members and congregationalism became the state religion. The colonists rejected episcopacy, but upheld the principle of uniformity of faith. John Winthrop was made governor of these settlements at Salem and Boston. Over 20,000 Puritans came to these settlements between 1628 and 1640. The ministers for the increasing number of churches were university graduates, most of whom were educated in Cambridge. They interpreted the authoritative scriptures to the people so that they would know how to apply them in their private and civil life. Although the polity of the churches was congregational, the theology of these Puritans was Calvinistic. The desire to occupy adjacent fertile areas and the intolerance of the leaders of the New England settlement led to what one might term the swarming of the Puritans. Thomas Hooker, appointed as minister of Newton in 1633, became irked with the limitation of the franchise to church members. He and his congregation petitioned the magistrates for permission to migrate to the fertile Connecticut River Valley to the west. They were permitted to leave, and by 1636, three towns were founded. In 1638, the fundamental orders of Connecticut were drawn up as the constitution for the new colony. This constitution was more liberal than that, than that of the mother colony because only the governor was required to be a church member, and government was based on the consent of the people expressed through their vote for the magistrates. The Salem Witchcraft Trials in 1692 when fourteen men and six women were hanged for witchcraft, were a measure of their intolerance. With the decline of a personal conversion experience, the churches of Massachusetts adopted the halfway covenant, which allowed children of the second unconverted generation to be baptized in order to have the vote in the state affairs. The founding of still another colony may be credited to John Davenport, pastor of a church in London 
and one of his members, Theophilus Eaton, who sailed to America with many members of the congregation in 1636. They decided that they would not be happy in Boston and set up the colony of New Haven in the southern part of the modern Connecticut. They obtained land from the Indians by treaty, and in 1639 created a commonwealth based on the Bible, in which only church members were permitted to vote. In 1664, this colony was merged with the others to form the colony of Connecticut. Unity of theology and polity was secured after the Cambridge Synod of 1646, at which representatives of the four Puritan colonies adopted the Westminster Confession as an expression of their theology and finally drew up the Cambridge Platform in 1648. This platform declared that each church was autonomous, but was related to other churches for fellowship and counsel. Each church was created by a church covenant linking the believers to one another and to Christ, the head of the church, pastors and deacons became the most important officials and ordination was performed by neighboring ministers when a church wanted to ordain someone. The early Puritans did not entirely ignore their pagan neighbors, and John Eliot, pastor of Roxbury Church, who began work among the Indians in 1646, organized his converts into towns. By 1674, there were 14 villages with nearly 3,600 Christian Indians. Unfortunately, War between the settlers and other Indians destroyed his villages. He also translated and published the Old and New Testaments in the Indian tongue in 1663 and 1661, respectively. Heading C. Planting the American Baptist Churches The beginning of the Baptist churches in America was also associated with the swarming of the Puritans. Roger Williams, who was educated for the Anglican ministry at Cambridge, soon adopted separatist views. His independence of mind brought him to Boston from unfriendly England in 1631. He went from there to Plymouth because he thought that Boston, the Boston church had not purified itself sufficiently. For two years he ministered at Plymouth, and when the church in Salem called him as their pastor in 1635, the general court, inspired by John Cotton, interfered. It ordered him out of the territory until uh, out of the territory under its jurisdiction within six weeks because he upheld the Indian ownership of land, opposed a state church, and insisted that the magistrates had no power over a man's religion. Leaving his wife and children in a mortgaged home, he plunged into the forest in the depth of winter and wandered until friendly Indians gave him aid. In 1663, he purchased some land from the Indians and founded Providence. In the next year, Mrs. Anne Hutchinson fell under the ban of authorities because she had meetings in her home where she proclaimed that she, what she called a covenant of grace. This covenant was this covenant was opposed to the covenant of works, which she said all the ministers but John Cotton proclaimed. Her inner light concept and claim to full assurance of salvation also got her into trouble. Exiled from the colony shortly before her baby was born, she was forced to walk in the depth of winter to Rhode Island, where she and her followers settled in, at Newport and Portsmouth in 1638. John Clark, a physician and preacher, became a teacher, a teaching elder of a church in Newport in 1638, but it is not certain that this was a Baptist church. In 1639, a church was founded in Providence, and all of the members were rebaptized, including Williams. There is some question whether or not this was by immersion 
but at any rate, the twelve members organized the church along Baptist lines. It was probably the first Baptist church in America. Although there was a church in Newport in 1638, the first distinct Baptist church in Newport appeared in 1648. According to the records, both the Newport and Providence churches still dispute for the title of the oldest Baptist church in America. Williams later from the Providence church, but he continued to serve Williams later withdrew from the Providence Church, but he continued to serve the settlement by securing a temporary charter for Rhode Island in 1644. This church, this charter, was confirmed by the Charter of 1663, granted by Charles II. Williams's great greatest con- contribution was his emphasis on the separation of church and state, freedom of conscience, and fair treatment of the Indians in the acquisition of land by treaties. The great Baptist fellowships of modern times has sprung from his early activities in Rhode Island. Shubal Stearns carried the Baptist message to Sandy Creek, North Carolina, and throughout South Carolina. Isaac Backus, who left the Congregational Church and became a Baptist through revival, also wished to separate church and state by ending taxes for religious support. He helped found Rhode Island College or now Brown University, in 1764, and served as a trustee from 1765 to 1799. Heading D. Planting Roman Catholicism in Maryland. Central and South America received a homogeneous Latin authoritarian Roman Catholic culture from Spain and Portugal, but North America, except for Quebec and Louisiana, received a pluralistic Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture from Northern and Western Europe. In 1565, the Spanish introduced a short-lived Roman Catholicism into Florida, and later into New Mexico, Arizona, and California. Up to 35,000 Indians were gathered into missions under Roman Catholic clergy in New Mexico and Arizona. The ruins of Spanish missions along the California coast show that about 100,000 Indians lived in those missions. The French planted it in Quebec, but Catholicism did not take root in the 13 colonies until 1634 in Maryland. Most of the Irish and Germans who came after 1850 were Roman Catholic. The Lords Baltimore, George Calvert, and his son, Cecil Calvert, were successive proprietors of what became known as Maryland, Unlike the idealistic Roger Williams, the Calverts were interested in profits, and from 1634, when the colony began, they permitted religious toleration so that Protestants as well as Roman Catholics would settle there. The strict political control by Calvert was balanced by religious toleration until Maryland was made a royal colony in 1692. Anglicanism became the established religion in 1702 when the English government finally approved the 1692 Act of the Colonial Assembly. Heading E. Pennsylvania and the Quakers Quakers appeared in Boston in 1656, but soon found that they were not welcomed by the New England Puritans because of their idea of separation of church and state and their indifference to doctrine. After 1674, New Jersey was divided into East and West Jersey until 1702, and West Jersey became a Quaker settlement. But it was Pennsylvania that became the great Quaker refuge through the efforts of William Penn. 
Charles II owed £16,000 to Penn's father and gave William Penn control of Pennsylvania in 1681 to pay the debt. Penn made the, colo the colony an asylum where the oppressed of any faith might find refuge. This explains the great diversity of sects that, that is apparent in the study of the religious history of Pennsylvania. In 1683, great numbers of German Mennonites settled in Germantown near Philadelphia. In 1740, numbers of Moravians settled in Pennsylvania after a short residence in Georgia between 1735 and 1740. Zinzendorf, leader of the Moravians, visited Pennsylvania himself in 1741 and unsuccessfully attempted to unite the German sects. Bethlehem became a leading center for the Moravians, although American Lutheranism and its beginnings had its beginnings in the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam and in the Swedish colony along the Delaware River, it had no definite organization until Henry Mullenberg landed in America in 1742. He was able to form a Lutheran synod in Pennsylvania in 1748, and by the time of the Revolution, there were about 75,000 Lutherans in Pennsylvania and the Middle Colonies, whereas the Anglican Church dominated the South Colonies or the Southern Colonies and the Congregational Churches, the Northern Colonies. Heading F. Presbyterianism in America. During the first half of the 17th century, in Scottish Presbyterian, uh, the Scottish Presbyterians, who were brought by, in by James I to displace the native Irish, continued to migrate to Northern Ireland. Many of the Scotch-Irish migrated to the colonies after 1710 because of the economic discrimination practiced against Ireland by the trade laws of England. By 1750, about 200,000 had come to America. Many, after a short stay in New England, moved to New Jersey and to New York, where they populated Ulster and Orange counties. More went into central and western Pennsylvania and became influential in the Pittsburgh area, which became a leading center of American Presbyterianism. Others went south, into the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Francis Mechamy, an Irishman who arrived in the colonies in 1683, became the father of American Presbyterianism. He upheld freedom of religious speech under the English Toleration Act of 1689. In his trial before the governor, Lord Cornbury, for preaching without a license, by 1706, he had organized a presbytery in Philadelphia, and in 1716, the first synod of the colonies was held. In 1729, the synod adopted the Westminster Confession as the standard of faith. The Presbyterians ranked with the Anglicans, Congregationalists, and Baptists as the largest churches in the colony. Heading G. Methodism in the Colonies. Methodism was introduced to the 13 colonies by Robert Strawbridge in Maryland and Philip Embury in, and Captain Webb in New York after 1760. John Wesley sent Richard Boardman and Joseph Pilmore as official missionaries in 1768. The great circuit rider Francis Asbury came in 1771, and in 1784, when Methodism was formally organized in the colonies, he became the first bishop. He also developed the Methodist system of circuit riders who offered religious services to scattered settlers. This system, together with the Baptist farmer preachers, resulted in rapid expansion of Baptists and Methodists on the frontier. 
In this manner, the various churches created by the Reformation were transplanted from Europe to America, and with England as, it, as the bridge during the first 150 years of the history of the colonies. Except for a while in Maryland and the middle colonies, an established church held sway until the American Revolution. After the Revolution, the separation of church and state made the churches of America dependent on voluntary support for money to finance their ventures, and on evangelism to win the unchurched and children of members of the church into their fellowship. Roman numeral 2. The Education in the Colonies After homes had been built, churches erected, civil government set up, and means of livelihood secured, education was one of the earliest concerns of the colonists, according to the pamphlet New England's First Fruits. This interest was in the tradition of the Reformation because Calvin and Luther had emphasized the need of education so that the individual could read his Bible and so that the leaders of the church and state could be trained. The Geneva Bible of 1560 had first place in their curricula and the, that the educational system institutions of the early America of early America and classical training took place took second place as an aid to the full knowledge of the Bible. Vocational education in the colonies was assured by the con continuance of the apparent apprenticeship system of England. By this system, one was apprenticed to a master in a particular trade until one learned that trade. Elementary education was by law the concern of the government in the col northern colonies, but in the southern, in the southern, the same, the same end was secured in wealthy families by the hiring of a private tutor. Secondary schools, known as Latin or grammar schools, were set up to prepare the students for university by giving them a grounding in the classical languages. Colleges were to provide civic and religious leaders. Harvard was founded in 1636 to, quote-unquote, advance learning, and to secure a literate ministry that could pass on the cultural and religious tradition of the current generation to that which was to succeed it. The main end of life and study was to know God and His Son, Christ, so that He would become, quote, the only foundation, end quote, of learning. John Harvard, after whom the, Har the college was named, willed about 800 pounds and his library of about 400 books to the infant college. William and Mary College in Williamsburg was founded in 1693 with the idea that one of its main functions should be, quote, the breeding of good ministers, end quote. Shortly thereafter, the Puritans of Connecticut opened Yale College in 1701 to give youth a, quote, liberal and religious education, end quote, so that leaders for the churches should not be lacking. In 1726, William Tennant Sr., an Irish minister, set up a, quote, log college, end quote, near Philadelphia to educate his sons and other boys for the ministry. Jonathan Dickinson secured a charter in 1746 for a school to continue this effort. This school, known as the College of New Jersey, moved to Princeton and was eventually known as Princeton University. King's College, or other words, Columbia, came into existence by royal charter in 1754, and the Baptists set up Rhode Island College in 1764 as an institution that would teach religion and the sciences without regard to sectarian differences. In due course, it became Brown University. Dartmouth was founded in 1764 as a school to educate Indians. 
the present Rutgers came into being in 1825, and the Quaker School of Haverford was founded in 1833. Each group sought to set up an institution of higher learning to provide godly leaders in the church and the state. Roman numeral three, the Great Awakening. Revivals have occurred several times in Protestant North America, the British Isles, Scandinavia, Switzerland, Germany, and Holland. Revival or renewal was a Protestant transatlantic movement, generally in times of crisis, to bring believers to repentance for their sins and to engage in a godly walk, witness, and work. It often occurred spontaneously, in different areas at the same time, resulting in the conversion of many who became godly churchgoers and lived godly lives in their homes and work. The Great Awakening was a series of simultaneous, spontaneous, unorganized, royal, rural, or village congregational awakenings led by godly pastors such as Jonathan Edwards. Revivals might be local, as in Edwards Church, citywide, as in Charles G. Finney's meetings in Rochester in 1830-31, at a college such as the Revival at Yale in 1802, at a camp meeting like the one in Cane Ridge in 1801, provincial, such as in Saskatchewan Revival in 1971, transatlantic, as the Great Awakening was, or even global, such as the Lay Revival of 1857-95, to and the Global Awakening of after 1900. Evangelism has often been confused with revival. It is actually a result of a revival as non-Christians become converted and accept Christ. The church on page 366 shows the recurrent revivals of America, American religious history. Recurrent revivals have been characteristic of Atlantic Anglo-Saxon, Teutonic, and American Christianity. The need of reaching the unchurched as well as of stirring the believers seems to have motivated these spiritual awakenings. They appear to have occurred in several areas for at least a decade at a time. At times of crisis before 1865, they were spontaneous, unorganized, pastoral, and rural or village congregational awakenings. Sometime before 1700, a decline of morals and religion caused by the influence of the frontier, a dynamic population on the move, a series of brutalizing wars, and the tendency in some areas to separate the church and the state became noticeable. Similar crises or problems in the British Isles and Western Europe brought revivals there also. The more Calvinistic Great Awakening had its beginning in the preaching of Theodore Freilingenheisen to his Dutch Reformed congregation in New Jersey in 1726. The revival stimulated earnest moral and spiritual life among the people. Freilingenheisen's work influenced the Presbyterian pastors Gilbert Tennant and William Tennant, Jr., so that they became fiery evangelists of revival among the Scottish-Irish of the Middle Colonies. Whitfield thus found the groundwork for revival soundly laid when he came to the Middle Colonies in 1739. The revival fires that had started among the Calvinistic Dutch Reformed and Presbyterians of the Middle Colonies soon spread to the Congregationalists, New England, through the efforts of Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was a precocious student who graduated from Yale in 1720 at the age of 17 and became associate pastor of Northampton in western Massachusetts in 1727. Although he 
read his manuscript sermons, his earnest manner and prayer had a great effect on his people. His 1741 sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is an impressive example of his pulpit power. The revival which began in 1734 spread throughout New England until it reached its high tide in 1740. George Whitfield made his appearance at, at this time in Boston, and his preaching there and throughout New England was attended with great success. When Edwards lost his pulpit in 1750, he served as an Indian missionary in 1758. In that year, he became president of Princeton, where he studied, where he died of smallpox inoculation in that same year. He upheld a Calvinistic theology and believed that while people have a rational ability to turn to God, because of total depravity, they lack the moral ability or inclination. This ability must be imparted by divine grace. He made much of the sovereignty and love of God in his work, Freedom of the Will. He wrote that God's love draws people to himself and to his service after they have become Christians. Presbyterians from the middle colonies carried the revival fires to the south. To the south, Samuel Davies became the leader of the revival among the Presbyterians in Hanover County in Virginia. This had grown out of Samuel Morris's reading of religious literature to his neighbors in his quote, reading house. End quote. The Baptist phase of revival in the South grew out of the work of Shubal Stearns and Daniel Marshall of New England. Their preaching was more emotional and many were won to the Baptist Church in North Carolina. Revivalistic Methodism also took deep roots in the South through the efforts of Devereux Gerat, an Episcopalian minister and lay preachers during the revival. Whitfield unified the efforts of all these revivalistic preachers as he traveled in all the colonies in seven visits between 1738 and 1769. Although unusual phenomena often followed his preaching, it was a sober type of revival than a soberer type of revival than the Second Awakening, which was to come near the end of the century. It was the American counterpart of pietism in Europe and the Methodist revival in England. Such a movement was bound to have unusual results. Between 30 and 40,000 people and 150 new churches were added to those in New England alone out of the population of 300,000. Thousands more came into the churches in the southern and middle colonies. A higher moral tone was noticed in the homes, work, and amusements of the people. Colleges such as Princeton, Kings, or Columbia, Hamden, Sydney, and others were started to provide ministers for the, for the many new congregations. Missionary work was spurred to that, so that men like David Brainerd in 1743, with great personal sacrifice, engaged in missionary work among the Indians after his expulsion from Yale in 1742 for criticizing the spiritual state of his tutor. Presbyterians founded the College of New Jersey, now Princeton University, to train ministers in 1743. Jonathan Edwards' publication of Brainerd's diary inspired many able men to become missionaries. Whitfield founded the orphanage at Bethesda near Savannah, Georgia, for which he took up collections in his meetings. He also helped the 13 colonies to sense their unity and common culture, and values. The revival also brought schism, as ministers took sides concerning the attitude of the church to the movement. New England clergymen split into the, quote, old lights, led by Charles Chauncey, who opposed the revival, 
the interit evangelist and the Calvinism of many of the revivalists. And the new lights, led by Edwards, who has supported the revival and a slightly modified Calvinism. This schism led eventually to the development of an orthodox group and a liberal group. Out of, the, out of Chauncey's group, the Unitarians, which split off New England, Congregationalism, emerged early in the 19th century. The revival split the Presbyterians in the middle colonies into two groups in 1741. They were not reunited until 1758. The, quote, old side, end quote, made up the older ministers in, the, in and near Philadelphia opposed the licensing, licensing and ordaining of untrained men to the ministry, the intrusion of the revivalists into established parishes, and the critical attitude of many of the revivalists toward the work of the ministers. The new side supported the revival and the licensing of untrained men who showed unusual spiritual gifts to take care of the new churches. The Dutch Reformed of New Jersey and the Baptists of, of the South also both split for a time over the attitude the church should take toward the revival. But it cannot be denied that the revival was a valuable influence in the life of America and helped to unify the colonies, to give the laity more prominence, and to prepare the people spiritually to face the problems of the French and Indian Wars of 1756 to 1763. Roman numeral four, the churches and the American Revolution. The American Revolution also brought many problems to the colonial churches. The Anglican Church remained loyal to the revolutionary cause in southern colonies such as Virginia, in the middle colonies such as Maryland, and its loyalty was about equally divided between the revolutionists and the English. In New England, it was generally loyal to England. Because John Wesley was a Tory and supported the ruler, the Methodists were accused of disloyalty to the colonial cause. Generally, however, they took a neutral position. The Quakers, Mennonites, and Moravians were at heart patriotic, but their pacifist principles kept them from any participation in the war. Congregationalists, Baptists, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, and Presbyterians espoused the cause of revolution, and in their sermons and teaching, the ministers and educators amplified the idea of the church covenant based on the con consent of the people into a political compact between, on the consent of the people, as necessary to the setting up of any state. The ruler cannot violate his contract or act contrary to God's laws, they reasoned, and not expect the people to revolt. The ending of the war in 1783 had important results for religion. The influence of the church contributed to the development of a ban on an established church, and of the right to a free exercise of religion as set forth in the First Amendment of, to the Constitution. It also brought about the separation of church and state in states where there had been an established church. Disestablishment took place in Maryland and New York during the Revolution, but not until 1786, through the efforts of Jefferson, did the Anglican Church lose its privileged privilege position in Virginia. New Hampshire in 1817, Connecticut in 1818, and Massachusetts in 1833 separated the Congregationalist Church from the, from the state. The laity assumed more prominence in the government and support of the churches. The churches also provided chaplains for the army. The churches, following the analogy of the nation, which had created a national government in 1789, made constitutions and set up national organizations. 
1784, the Methodists, led by Coke and Asbury, created a national church, which became known as the Methodist Episcopal Church. The Anglicans set up the Protestant Episcopal Church in 1789. The Presbyterians created a national church in 1788, and the first National General Assembly met in 1789. The Dutch Reformed created a national church in 1792. The German Reformed in 1793. New England churches were not greatly affected by the tendencies to centralization and nationalization of organization. It is fortunate that the new national churches were given fresh spiritual zeal by the Second Awakening, which began about the time the new nation adopted its constitution. The American churches had been tried by the fires of war, and they were now ready to take up their mission to the new United Nation. The Canadian churches were also affected by the Revolution. The Canadian Baptist, Congregational, and Anglican churches were strengthened by 30 or 40,000 Tories who migrated to eastern Canada, uh, where they were known as United Empire Loyalists. They strengthened the English element in Canada. Notable revival occurred through the efforts of Henry Alline, in Nova Scotia, the dualism in religion of Roman Catholic Quebec and Protestant Lower Canada, or Ontario, became more apparent when the French Roman Catholic Church was given special privileges by Quebec by the Quebec Act of 1774.